The Bob Murphy Show, episode 183. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. Today, I'm going to be talking again with Ben Powell. He's returning to the show, talking about his latest book, which has to do with the economics of immigration. So I don't need to give you folks any more preface for that. The conversation is pretty self-contained. But in case you don't know who Ben is, he is the executive director of the Free Market Institute and a professor of economics at the Jerry S. Rawls College of Business Administration at Texas Tech University. He's also a senior fellow with the Independent Institute and the secretary treasurer of the Southern Economic Association. And Ben got his master's and PhD in economics from George Mason. Ben's the author, among other things, of Out of Poverty, Sweatshops in the Global Economy. That's from Cambridge University Press back in 2014. And co-author with Robert Lawson of the book, Socialism Sucks, Two Economists Drink Their Way Through the Unfree World. And that was from Regnery back in 2019. So his latest book, the one we're covering today, is Wretched Refuse, question mark, The Political Economy of Immigration and Institutions. That's also from Cambridge. So I worked for Ben for a few years when I was down at Texas Tech. So again, Ben founded this thing called the Free Market Institute, which is connected or housed at Texas Tech University, but it's sort of a standalone entity. And if you want to get a PhD in economics and you like Austro-Libertarianism, then definitely check out the program Ben has up and running down there at Texas Tech. So without further ado, here is my discussion with Ben. Well, Ben, welcome back to the Bob Murphy Show. Hey, Bob. Always good to be back with you, buddy. <laughs> so you've got a new book out. You able to hold it up for the, for the people? Look at that. We can. Yes. Wretched Refuse. And you're doing it with Alex. Can you say his last name? Because I'm afraid I don't know how to pronounce his last name. Yes, I can. His last name is Narasta. Okay. And yours is, is Powell. So that one's easier. Yeah. So it's, you've done a lot, of, a lot of work over the years on immigration and institutions. And so this is, why don't you tell us quickly the story? How did this book come to be written? Was it, is it, uh, well, go ahead. Well, it actually, it was a multi year period. Uh, Alex Narast is an immigration policy analyst uh, at, at Cato Institute. And uh, I had seen a blog post he had done probably seven, eight years ago. And it was looking at, relationship kind of between immigration and economic freedom and addressing this kind of free market conservative libertarian fear about immigration of what if what if they came and, and eroded our freedoms that we care about as free enterprise free market guys and uh, it was a blog post so there wasn't much to it but I wrote him and I said hey you know what we should work on a journal article on this together mm -hmm. so we started doing a research then and, and looking at a big cross-section of countries and the relationships between stocks and flows of immigrants over a long period of time and what happens to economic freedom and uh, as we, we did that, it started opening up the path to, well, if it's not exactly that way, how are, what other ways can we look at this? And we just kept slicing it different ways, all concerned with what's come to be known as the, the new economic case for immigration restrictions, 
but it's not really new. You can find some version of it back in the Founding Fathers. You can find some version of it in Ludwig von Mises' work when he's writing about liberalism and in the nation state and economy too. Mm-hmm. And this book's overall an empirical investigation of whether immigrants, when they come, do they bring with them informal or formal changes in the rules via their norms from their origin countries that undermine our, our institutions and destination countries in a way that makes us less productive. Okay, great. So so that's the meat of it, and, and certainly I want to spend most of our time on that because that's the, the trickier one. But the, the idea is you're saying the reason that's the new economic case against like unrestricted immigration is that originally like the, what someone normally might say is you know, cliche, hey, they're taking our jobs or stealing my, my jobs. And so why don't we just spend a, just a minute on that, like just, just theoretically. So the idea is holding institutions constant. So people are just coming in and they don't vote and they don't mess up the culture in any in any negative way and just looking at them purely economically, as it were. And can you just explain like how do, how do economists think about that? And is, is that not really what's even under discussion anymore? Yeah. So there are discussions about it, but it's really small compared to what public beliefs about these things are. And mm-hmm. I did another book on this like five years ago, kind of summarizing what social scientists and economists debate about it versus what the general public does. In fact, it's up there. It's that book there. Uh, economics of immigration. And you'll find virtually no respectable economists working on this who say it's going to decrease the total number of jobs for the native-born population. Just like international trade and goods and services, immigration changes the mix of jobs done by the native-born population, but not the absolute quantity. And it changes that mix to correspond to what people's comparative advantage is, just like in international trade. So then people will talk about how does it affect wages? So if they don't uh, take our jobs, doesn't it push down wages? I mean, I've been called the economic illiterate because I've said it doesn't. And they're like, look, supply and demand. If you increase supply, it's got to push wages down. Mm -hmm. Well, no, because it's one, it's not the supply of labor. We have complements or substitutes. If immigrants have different skills than us, then rather than substituting for us, they free us up to do things that we're better suited to. They also demand goods and services, which helps offset some of this. And economists have written scores and scores of papers debating like the wage impact of immigration. And that debate has gone like so narrowly down. It basically comes down to in markets where immigrants are more like substitutes. So like high school dropouts in the United States and unskilled laborers from abroad there. How big is the negative effect on wages? Is it actually slightly positive or is it big as negative 8%? And how long does it last? Has it gone after six months, a year, two years? To me, no matter what your answer to that question is, it shouldn't be particularly relevant for what you think is optimal immigration policy. And especially, I mean, for your audience, Bob, for people who would consider themselves like free market types, whatever the answer to that question is, shouldn't be impacting their view of optimal immigration very much. And of course, you can look at fiscal stuff too, and whether they're a net tax drain or a tax gain. Most of this stuff with current stocks and flows of immigrants find it's about a wash. You can find some that are slightly negative, some that are slightly positive. But again, in viewing what you should have for quantity of immigrants in, it shouldn't be that big a deal because you could tweak your fiscal policy to turn any drain into a gain, given that consensus estimate among economists is that there's massive overall income gains from mm-hmm. allowing greater immigration. Now, most of those gains accrue to an immigrant themselves. But in principle, if you were worried about your fiscal concerns, if you have massive gains, pie gets bigger, you should be able to use policy to prevent anybody from from losing in that transition. Mm-hmm. Okay, let me just 
paraphrase the most of what you said there just to make sure people are getting it. So it's, <laughs> you mean to say it a nice way instead of babbling on like a damn academic like I did? <laughs> no, well, yeah, no, that that isn't really what I meant. But <laughs> um, okay, so because compliment and substitute, some people might. I mean, they'll know the the principles once you say it. But so the idea being, it's too simplistic to say. Hey, when immigrants come in, what does that do to U.S. wages? It, like, you got to realize, well, no, it makes a difference. Are we talking about medical doctors from India coming in? And yeah, that might conceivably depress the wages of, or the salaries of medical doctors here, but that's probably not going to affect people who are picking fruit. But it whereas, might increase simultaneously the salaries of nurses and medical technicians here. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. So... So that's the kind of thing you were you were getting at there in terms of saying, hey, labor is not just a homogenous thing. It, you know, you'd want to be more specific. And then you were saying empirically, even if you're bending over backwards to find documented examples where it does look like, at least according to certain regressions, blah, 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 that oh, a big influx of immigrants depressed native wages. It was something like unskilled workers coming in and then U.S. workers who didn't have a high school diploma, their wages went down and maybe like by 8% and it lasted a few years. Is, is that roughly what you said? Roughly what I said, yeah. Okay, and so clearly it's not like, oh, this thing coming in and this is why, you know, this is causing the opioid epidemic because now no one can get a job, right. you know, in the heartland anymore because of all these stupid immigrants, right? That's, so you're saying that's not, empirically that's not what the issue is. So the way non-economists argue about this in terms of immigrants and what they're doing to our economy, that's not where the literature has gone. No, and that and that's, just among economists, it doesn't matter if you're a free market libertarian economist or a, a lefty economist. This, this is fairly standard stuff in the immigration literature. Right. Okay. Okay. So that's that's good. Now, since you just mentioned it, why don't we go ahead and, and I was going to ask you at the end, but let's just go ahead and deal with it right now because you brought it up. It's always baffling. Why isn't at least it more seriously proposed, if not implemented, that yeah, if if some immigrant wants to come in, then they pay the treasury $10,000 a year for the first five years. And, and, and as many can come in as, as are willing to pay that or, or something like that. Like I don't hear people, or, or do they have some version of that and they call it something else? Yeah, so that's, I mean, to be clear, that's not my favorite immigration policy, but compared to the status quo, it would seem like a, a no-brainer. Right, it would seem like, yeah, that the critics would take the wind out of their sails if they're worried about fiscal impact and... So it wouldn't just be all open borders. It would be, yeah. Yeah, it, if someone were doing that, probably makes more sense to do it as a kind of immigrant surtax, call it 5%, 10% beyond whatever your normal marginal tax rate's gonna be that you just mm -hmm. pay for however long. Just because you think about binding wealth constraints of the upfront payment the first few years or something probably makes right, that, right. that lumpier. Mm -hmm. In principle, of course, capital markets could adjust to help finance this as well. Sure, sure. So- is there some reason you can see, like, to me, I don't see anybody proposing that. Like, even someone who does it knowing it's not going to go anywhere, but just so they look like they're trying to do some compromise, I just don't see why that's not banning them. I mean, because, like, with, you know, externalities of the climate change, there's all kinds of proposals for different things. And in immigration, I don't see as much creativity, or maybe just because I'm not in the literature. There's not as much creativity. And in this case, unlike the other, possibly, it's a, I think that's a bad thing. However, there are versions of what I what we just kind of mentioned in other parts of the world. Mm -hmm. Visas where, and it's not so much tied to the, the surtaxes, if you make an upfront investment of X amount of dollars, which sometimes is in the six figures, sometimes it's in the seven figures. Uh, mm -hmm. If you start a new company there, if you buy real estate valued at whatever price, then you can get a, a visa automatically. And part of the idea is that 
they're thinking that's good for the business climate in their country, period. Mm-hmm. But two, if you can clear that hurdle, you're probably not going to be a fiscal burden anyway. Right, right. Okay, fair enough. So now that we've done that stuff, is the, you're saying now the where the debate really is, does it have to do with, isn't the, is the slogan something like we wanted workers and instead we got people? Yeah. Is, is, okay. And so what is that? Is it Borja? <laughs> Bor- yeah, George Borja's put that as the title to his book, but the slogan goes back from before that of, you know, okay. it's not just economics, it's workers, yes, but they're people too. Mm-hmm. And they bring with them values that have other impacts in society. Now, the question that we're concerned with in this book is really, when economists estimate global gains from unrestricted or free migration, it's in the many trillions of dollars, usually 50 to about 150% of global GDP if you completely opened up movement of people. So a doubling of world income. If that's true, virtually any problem you can think about with immigration, you'd have to be thoroughly uncreative to not come up with some sort of way that you could use policy to take some of those gains and fix the problem. Mm-hmm. However, this new case for economic immigration restrictions says maybe that those gains aren't really there because they're predicated upon when the immigrants leave their unproductive origin they go to a productive destination country, and not only do they become more productive, but the people who are already there stay productive as well. So in simplest like lay terms on this, imagine all of the Cubans leave Cuba and come to, to Florida, but then they change Florida's institutions so it's socialist Cuba. Not only would the immigrants not become wealthier, but the people who are in Florida would all of a sudden become less productive. Now, this isn't going to be an all or nothing thing, but if they did that to some extent, mm-hmm. then the gains that people have estimated from global migration shrink dramatically or can even turn negative. So we're concerned with, do they bring the norms and values that could change these institutions, both formal and informal, in ways that would undermine specifically productivity? So this ain't about, do they bring their you know, preferences for Asian food with them when they come? It's about whether they bring values that would undermine our productivity. Okay, and so... Even domestically, you know, we see this where, oh, wow, because of California's crazy tax policies and everything else, people are fleeing and they're going to Texas and they're going to, and then the people in Texas say, no, don't come here because you're going to vote all the stuff that made, why you're leaving California in the first place. Spot on, Bob, that people talk about this. And and to be clear, in this book, we don't do measuring the interstate migrations in the United States. Mm -hmm. But I will, you know, casually, it's easy for us to relate and conceptually get what's going on here. Because, you know, I'm talking to you from from Texas Tech University at the Free Market Institute here. And I was a a migrant from Massachusetts to Texas. So the epitome of liberal state person who moves here. But I moved here and founded the Free Market Institute. My values are not the average values of somebody moving from or somebody in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. Similarly, when a lot of Californians leave California and come to Texas, their views aren't representative of your average Californian. There's a selection bias. The people who decide to move to Texas are disproportionately prone to liking what Texas is about. Now, not perfectly. And I don't like to use blue and red, you know, Republican, Democrat, but I've got Mm -hmm. the data on this so we can actually look at in the last Senate election. We don't have the data on the new election yet, but on the previous one, when it was uh, Ted Cruz versus Beto O'Rourke, non-native born Texans living in Texans voted for Cruz at a higher rate than the native born Texans did. So mm-hmm. it wasn't Democrats from California coming and voting Democrat. They disproportionately voted Republican, actually. Now, that doesn't mean liberal Californians don't ever bring their liberal politics anywhere. It's just they're probably more likely to move to similarly liberal Washington or Colorado or something 
them to come to the more mm-hmm. freedom-loving place in Texas. And this type of selection bias of who moves and where they choose to move to, I think is also at play in international migration. Okay, fair enough. Um, so I guess part of the, so here's what's going on, right? Right now in the real world, plenty of countries, especially the rich countries, have immigration restrictions in place to some degree or another. And so we're seeing, like, the only thing we can run regressions on and actually look at empirically are the effects of limited immigration. And so and you you and your colleagues are looking and say, hey, I don't see any problem. And then the critics, of course, are going to come back and say, well, okay, sure, but if we open up the floodgates and a billion people next year tried to move into the United States, that's going to swamp everything. And of course, it's not going to be the U.S. anymore. So how do you go about handling that type of a response? Yeah. So we do, we examine this a bunch of different ways in the book. We vary what type of measure of institutions and productivity we're looking at. And we look at what style immigration stocks and flows it comes with. So the first half of the book, we do a lot of cross-country studies where it's stocks and flows under managed migration systems to see at least as we increase migration within a certain range, what happens to our economic freedoms, level of corruptions, level of crime, terrorism, things like that. And we don't find much of a relationship there. But the biggest criticism, as you kind of alluded to of this, is, well, it's coming from existing stocks and flows of migrants that come under a managed system, which is certainly true. Unfortunately, in my view, that's what the data set gives us to be able to do Mm -hmm. because not very many countries are open. But then in the second half of the book, we look at some case studies of open migration or at least versions of open migration that involve mass migrations, big changes in the population, short periods of time. So we look at the United States, the 19th and early 20th century, compared to its more closed period in the middle of the 20th century, compared to more recently. We also look at the case of Israel in the 1990s that had immigration explode its population by about 20% in a very short period of time, including with full citizenship and voting rights. And ditto for Jordan, which also in the 1990s had a mass flow that was about 10% of its population, also with instant voting rights. And what happened to their institutions of economic freedom? So I'd be happy to delve into any of those you want to talk about if you'd like. Sure. Yeah, so the the Israel one, I, I've seen your paper on that, or a paper you covered it. So yeah, can you tell us about that one? I thought that was a good one. Sure. So this is a particular case in the modern context. In fact, by the way, the critique that you mentioned of like the cross-country studies of looking at this, I got an email from somebody saying exactly your point. And when I was, and they said, I would like to see a large natural experiment of an exogenous migration flow. As I'm reading it, I'm thinking, Israel in the 1990s. Well, let me look real quick. I'll just pull up the economic freedom data. During the decade of the 1990s, Israel improved its economic freedom. It went from about 90th in the world all the way up to 45th in the world. It went from below average globally in economic freedom to significantly above average in economic freedom. During this time period, what happened? So they have a, a kind of curious immigration policy where mm-hmm. worldwide Jewish people can migrate to Israel with instant citizenship. And by Jewish people, you don't have to have the Jewish faith. You have to have a Jewish parent or grandparent or spouse or be a descendant of one of those. So they've had that policy basically since the start of the country. But in the 1990, the Soviet emigration restrictions went away. And all of a sudden, you've got a mass of people in the Soviet Union who could qualify under Israel's policy to migrate there, who migrate in great numbers immediately. These are people with a 70-year history of no political freedoms, no civil freedoms to speak of, very little economic freedom. 
and move into Israel and immediately qualify for voting and for welfare and other things. And what you find is actually this big increase in economic freedom in Israel is largely tied to that Soviet migration. The political parties of the left and right were really about equally powerful at that time. And the Soviet vote tips the favor going more liberal of the policies in both parties, actually. And, uh, you know, I can talk about fancy statistical techniques and stuff we do for counterfactual, but sometimes, you know, the picture worth a thousand words type of thing, the Labour Party, the left party in Israel, they stopped using the color red in their political propaganda because they didn't want to alienate the Soviet vote. The mm -hmm. Soviet, or they should, shouldn't say so, the, the immigrants from the former Soviet Union, the, the Russian immigrants, mm -hmm. they didn't want to recreate Soviet socialism in Israel. They wanted a better life and something else. If they were bringing those values from there, you wouldn't see the Labour Party running away from the, the color red. All right. So they formed their own political parties. They got seats in the legislature. They joined the coalition uh, government, I believe, in 96. One of their parties did. And all of this is a period of increasing economic freedoms and maintaining their political freedoms in Israel. In fact, if you look across the big areas of economic freedom, all of them but one improved. The protection of property rights, the level of regulation, the monetary unit, the freedom to trade internationally, all of these things got better. The only one that didn't was size of government. And it really wasn't because policy change. It's just because you had a bunch of immigrants who immediately qualified for welfare. So spending on transfers went up, which means their freedom kind of went down. But it wasn't as a change of policy. It was just a change of payment flows. So that right. you find 10 years later, it's recovered back up to where it was in the first place as they've integrated economically. Okay, well, that, yeah, that's interesting. Um, just playing devil's advocate, I can imagine someone listening and saying, okay, fair enough. But even there, even though they were, came from the former Soviet Union, they were still, you know, had the Jewish culture, you know, and Jewish people often, you know, are, are good about keeping the traditions alive. So they could say this was still like Jewish people returning home, as it were, and they and they were not certainly not welcome in where they used to be. So there they were kind of, you know, they weren't the ones running that that show over there. And so it makes sense that they didn't identify with that. So are there any examples where it really was a different culture of people flooding in that didn't assimilate very well and yet things, you know, they, they didn't change the voting patterns or economic freedom didn't go down if that's the way. And maybe there isn't such a case, but I, I, can, I can imagine a critic yeah, hearing sure. the Israel story then saying, okay, well, I'm going to move the goalposts again. So let's just be clear, though. That's before we just say, oh, it was culturally homogeneous. They wanted to be part of a Zionist yeah. project or whatever. These mm -hmm. people, almost all of them, their primary language was Russian. A very small percentage of them spoke any Jewish language. Most of them were agnostics or atheists from living in Soviet Union for many years. This wasn't a, a religious migration. In fact, most of them, Israel wasn't their first choice destination country. It's just where they, oh, could, okay. it's just where they could qualify to go. All right, that's, that is very, yeah, okay, good. I'm, I'm glad you pushed back on that because, okay, I didn't know those details. The way that they are a little bit different, though, Bob, is compared to like third world mass migrations, they did tend to be better educated. Okay. So that's one aspect that's that's not represented. And by the way, this is the the kind of tension in this book. And when we get to the end of this, I'll uh, foreshadowing here. There is no QED at the end here of everywhere and always such and such must be true. What we're doing is mm -hmm. people have made a case against immigration based on a particular fear without giving any evidence for it. We're going to try different ways of looking for evidence, and we're not finding it. So there's not this general case. It doesn't mean you can't come up with some kind of specific right. example or something. Mm -hmm. 
And there's problems with the evidence in both ways. From the cross-country studies, it's, well, it comes from managed migration. From each case study, the question is, how well does that generalize to somewhere else? But right. we're going to try to put both these pieces together and say, what's the best we can do given current state of the world? But there are others. So we do Jordan like this, and it's uh, Palestinians fleeing uh, Kuwait under Gulf War One, And they, because of a, a tweak in the law, had a immediate Jordanian citizenship and voting rights there. And also, a case that's about 10% of the population that happens in a very short period of time. The increase in economic freedom is, again, significant compared to what we'd otherwise expect. Here, they were part of a minority that was traditionally discriminated against in the government sector. They were attracted to private enterprise and helped tip the equilibrium into more free enterprise type reforms in order to integrate them into the economy. Another one that's another kind of unique example. But we can also think, and your listeners are probably more familiar with this, like the long-term history of the United States, Bob. So mm -hmm. from our founding until 1920, essentially, we had a mostly unrestricted, with the exception of some Chinese regulations on immigration from China in the late 19th century, we basically had a free immigration policy in the United States. But in this era, over this long period of time, rates, you know, we don't have a comprehensive measure of economic freedom to talk about here, but we can look at like what happens to government spending, size of government over this time, mm -hmm. what happens compared to other industrialized countries. What we find is during this period of time, growth of government's relatively modest. It grows, but compared to what comes next from 1920 to 1965, that's our biggest period of most restricted immigration in the United States. Here you get your biggest welfare state program and implementations, you get your biggest growth in the size of government as a percent of the economy or based on population, then it starts to slow post-1965 to more recently when we've had bigger migration again. Not as low as prior, but we're more restricted than prior as well. It just doesn't ne neatly map into it. But in fact, if you go back to 19th century writing on this, you can find Marx and Engels uh, trading letters Mm -hmm. bemoaning immigration to the United States, preventing a socialist movement from having more influence here because the labor union movement was weakened by immigrants because, you know, labor solidarity of the workers, when you get, you know, competition from them, the immigrants coming in, it undermines the power of the union. But then it's also harder to create that solidarity between a more heterogeneous population and limiting the labor union movement in the late 19th century probably limited the rise of government in the 19th, late 19th century as labor unions are a big push in that, in that direction. So probably like at an economics conference, you just got up there and said, unrestricted immigration breaks the back of labor unions. They probably would not applaud that. <laughs> uh, that that's whether it, it does or, or, well, there can be multiple effects of breaking the back of labor unions. <laughs> One of them is that you're less likely to get uh, a stronger push for big government. Right. And by the way, to be clear too, our, our claim isn't that immigration never changes institutions. It's that it doesn't change institutions in such a way that lowers our productivity. Mm -hmm. So sometimes immigrant flows, like I've talked about in Israel, Jordan, and to some extent the United States, actually either improved institutions or delayed, slowed kind of institutional degradation in the United States' instance. Well, I was going to you know, be a wise guy and say, the Iroquois Indians would say, oh, immigration did change our institutions. Right. But so we can look around the world anytime, though, right, and say, hey, when this mm -hmm. country invaded that country, it changed its institution. Sure. Right. That wasn't right. the immigration where they integrated, where they came and married into the Indians and were welcomed. This was mm -hmm. more akin, not exactly, but more akin to an invasion. 
Okay. And I think it's a big mistake to talk about immigrant groups as if they're the equivalent to a, an armed invasion crossing the border to take over your institutions. Oh, oh, right, right, yeah. I'm not, I'm not saying you said that. Okay, good. So just to restate something you said a minute ago that I thought was a good point, because we haven't experienced the modern world with largely unrestricted movement of people into different countries, like the way people can move between U.S. states, like citizens can go back and forth between states and, you know, hey, I want to move to Texas. You can, you know, nobody's making you fill out lengthy paperwork and so forth. Because we haven't had that for all the, let's say, rich countries, it's impossible if someone says, prove to me empirically that a disaster wouldn't occur. You can't because how, how could you do that, right? But what you've done is you say, we've looked at, you know, the types of things you think might go wrong with that. We've looked at all the evidence that we have so far, like if unrestricted immigration would lead to disaster, then presumably greatly loosening immigration ought to lead to a mild disaster or something. And yet we see, if anything, the opposite. Is that kind of what you're, you're getting at? So you can't prove that it wouldn't happen, but the evidence so far gives you no reason to suspect that there would be a catastrophe. Yeah, I think that's accurate, Bob. I mean, the, the new economic case for immigration restrictions is an empirical conjecture. And an empirical conjecture requires empirical evidence. The people who make this case have provided none. So what we do is we try to gather what we can. And if you're going to say it's going to be a disaster at big levels, and we can say, well, we can look across between 110, 130 countries around the world, depending which measure we're using. And we can say, well, what happens as we increase levels, but at a smaller amount? If we see things improving, not getting worse, mm -hmm. it can't rule out that sometime it tips over and goes down. But it makes me more skeptical than just making stuff up. Right. And then we can look at places where it's individual countries that are way over on that, that large-scale migration, and they're just little points. They're not a whole bunch, but they're not in that direction either. You start putting these two things together, makes me skeptical of this, this more general claim about it. And by the way, we also have, these aren't open and shut the way kind of some a priori laws of economics would be, but we have theoretical reasons to think about this too. And I, I kind of mentioned selection bias of, of who chooses to move, mm -hmm. but I mean, think about the Cuban immigrants who move from Cuba to the United States. They don't leave wanting to recreate Cuban socialism. They're not the comrades who were benefiting from socialism. They were those who were oppressed by it. So they mm -hmm. tend to rebel against what they were leaving. So I think there's some aspect of that in most migrants. I think the Cuban one's probably a particularly strong one, but there's some aspect of this in the other ones. You also tend to assimilate to the culture, the political culture that you move to eventually. Not perfectly, but there's some selection bias of who comes to start with, but then some assimilation as well. And particularly when you think about things that aren't even political values, but things like corruption and such. You know, well, they come from corrupt countries. They're going to bring their corruption with them. Well, you know, I, I knew a girl in grad school who was from Russia, and she got pulled over and a uh, cop pulled her over and she held a $20 bill out the window. And uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> she, he obviously got mad at her and she said, what, not enough? And grabbed another 20. I'm pretty sure mm -hmm. she never made that mistake again. When you leave an environment where corruption pays and you go to an environment where corruption doesn't pay, at least as much, mm -hmm. you start changing your behavior and modifying. I think both of these things are going on. So it's not just correlations of statistics that are out there, but we can think about like, mm -hmm. you know, reasonable ways to have theory that points in a direction of why these empirical results would make sense. Yeah. So did the U.S. cop correct her and say, no, no, in this country, we only take money from drug dealers. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> so... Again, I'm kind of just hitting the same point over and over from different angles, but it, it is, I do want the average listener to, to have be challenged. 
what if somebody says, all right, Paul, I can't pinpoint. I mean, you, you, you're, you're a big smart guy and you got all your stuff and you thought about this, but come on, you're telling me if it's wide open and literally millions of new people are coming into California that the Democratic Party is not going to recruit them more than the Republicans and they're not going to vote for socialism. It's going to be billed to them as existing programs and they're just going to boost the numbers. Like already we're getting checks from the government right now because of the coronavirus. And so what we're arguing over we're 1,600 or 2,000 or 1,400 and they're not going to be convinced with the Democratic machine out there to get these people registered if they're allowed to vote depending on how the rules work. And, and vote for the bigger welfare state, you're honestly going to say that's not going to happen? Come on. Yeah, so I think a, a couple of things. One, the Democrat versus Republican has a lot more to do with rhetoric towards immigrants than it does actually the policy views of the immigrants. The social su- surveys that are done of immigrants' policy ver- views versus native-born people's policy views, they're really close to similar. The immigrants are a little bit more statist on some margins, a little bit better on some other margins, but they also vote at lower rate even once they're naturalized. They vote at lower rates than native-born Americans as well. So they don't move that needle very much. Second, the issue of immigration and citizenship, I do think, are things that don't necessarily need to tick and tack. Mm -hmm. Being in favor of free migration doesn't mean being in favor of any particular citizenship arrangement for immigrants who come. It would be perfectly compatible with the economics to say, we welcome workers, but citizenship, that's a whole lot more before you can get. So in fact, thinking about like, to the extent you'd want to address these fears, rather than just putting up a blanket, can't come in, mm-hmm. what you'd want to do is tailor it so you can get as much of the economic benefit while mitigating on the margin any problem that would come from this change of institution stuff. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's a longer term before you get citizenship and voting rights. Maybe you never do. Maybe it's your children who eventually do. Although the selection bias among the immigrants who come might be better than what they would get for their children who are raised in public education in the United States. That's probably where our our real problem is is in the United States education. But then more generally, let's just say that we do identify a particular channel where the immigrants are going to come and hate our freedom and try to undermine it. What's the appropriate response to that? And we play around with this idea in the conclusion of the book a little bit. It does not equal Therefore, we have to massively close the borders and strictly limit the number in. So let's just say, uh, for the sake of argument, that Latin American migration to the United States started to have an impact that undermined our institutions and made us less free. Well, the appropriate response to that would be, okay, we're going to put a quantitative or qualitative or both restriction on Latin American migration. But meanwhile, we can have open migration in any numbers for Muslims from North Africa and the Middle East and Asians. And if Europe faced something that was reversed of that, and statistically, in terms of migration patterns, is holes, they have very few immigrants from Latin America. Their concern is about Muslim and North African immigration. If they had a quantitative, qualitative restriction on that while being open to Latin American migration, we get at a world that approximates the gains of free migration. It just it changes the destinations of particular origin immigrants but in a way that distributes them such that no one group swamps mm-hmm. the institutions in a, another particular place. So it would actually be like, Bob, and you're a free trade guy like me. When people talk about the national defense exception to free trade, of why it's okay to have government protectionism because we need something for national defense, it's usually bogus. But let's just mm-hmm. play with it for one second here. When it is invoked, if it's done so literally, it's for a particular country and a particular good or resource. We don't say 
Well, there's a national exempt uh, defense exemption from free trade for steel in landlocked Lesotho in South, uh, you know, it's, that's the little country that's inside South Africa, entirely landlocked by it. I like how you said, you know, no, I, I had no idea that there was such a country. <laughs> so in case you're just making that up, I just want to go on record and say, I am not confirming that it even exists. Go ahead. I can probably mispronounce it though. So Lesotho, <laughs> little teeny Lesotho, it's entirely surrounded by the country of South Africa. If, okay. if an economist says, oh, well, they need to protect their steel industry to be able to have military production in the event they go to war with South Africa because they couldn't get it in from anywhere. We don't then take from that that Lesotho can also protect Nike sneakers, T-shirts, hats, and whatever else. It's one mm -hmm. thing. And we also don't take from that. Therefore, the United States that has coasts on two oceans would also have a national trade exemption for steel. Right. It's very specific to the country and the good. So this in the national, if this were shown to be true for a particular bilateral flow, it doesn't justify blanket immigration restrictions. It would be the equivalent of a, a national defense exemption mm -hmm. about a quantitative or qualitative limitation on one particular flow, but not all the others. And that wouldn't be justified other places, if that makes sense. Right. So let me just paraphrase that. So you're saying even if, you know, Critics can come up with things, and obviously you guys can't knock down every possible objection. So even if someone does come up with a scenario where, hey, there's a bunch of people coming from this country, and the, the chance of them you know, forming terrorist cells inside or whatever is high, okay, then you're saying the solution would not be to restrict immigration across the board and from all countries. It would be, okay, have some very specific things set up for people coming from this one hot spot, and have more vetting, or whatever the case may be, but you certainly would not have you're not justifying the current stance of immigration policy based on this one very narrow scenario. Right. What happens in this, this debate, people tends to be with immigration, by the way, whatever argument there is for restrictions, if it gets knocked down, then you replace it with a different argument rather than changing your position. Uh, and that's a little bit what's I think happened. that's with academia. I don't think it's about immigration. <laughs> <laughs> what's happened here. But the, the new economic case for immigration restrictions, mm. people tend to hold it up as if it justifies the status quo of immigration restrictions. And it doesn't at all. That's my point at right, the end right. here. Yep, yep, it, would, yep. it would justify a very tailored policy to address a particular negative aspect of a particular immigrant flow. Right. Kind of like, um, oh, what was it? Shoot. I was just doing it with somebody the other day. I forget what, the, what we were talking about. But I said, okay, like with food, though, you know, your approach would mean the government should own all, all the land and make all the food and give it out. No, we do food stamps. I think it was with education or something, but I don't remember. But it was like they were trying to justify why do we have public schools and all the reasons they came up with, even if we conceded it, would not justify the institution of what so-called public schools. It would just mean you use subsidized tuition or something, but you'd still have private production just like with food. You don't have massive collectivized farms right. because some poor people. Yeah, so Go ahead. The issue here, right, Bob, and, you know, in economics speak, it's externalities. In normal people speak, it's like a spillover, something else that spills over to the others. Mm -hmm. Economists will use these as a justification for regulation. But when they do, it has to be a justification for a specific regulation. It doesn't give you carte blanche to do all sorts of crazy shit. So for mm -hmm. otherwise supposed free market economists during COVID have been like, oh, well, you know, there's a transmission externality of the disease, so lockdowns are okay. No, that's freaking ludicrous. What you, a lockdown is a very blunt tool that does all sorts of things, and it doesn't just address the externality in the least costly way. Mm -hmm. It's very similar in this immigration thing here. If this particular externality or spillover from some immigrant groups exists, that doesn't imply a blanket restriction on all immigrant groups. 
some of my listeners, you won them over with that. Like, all right, maybe this guy's okay. Yeah, yeah, guys, the, the lockdown. Because you, you're against the, the lockdown. Inefficient, yeah. evil intrusion on our economy, our economic freedoms, our liberty, all that jazz. And it's been done on an extra. If you were going to make an economically literate justification for it, it would have to be on externality grounds. And even then, you don't get the type of policy we yeah. got. I'm trying to think of a joke where, like, you could tell people, like, of that mindset, like, immigrants are no worse than SARS-CoV-2. I'm like, oh, really? Okay, then that's, that's the big worry. They're um, way better. So, <laughs> I know. I'm, <laughs> let's take a quick break from the discussion for some housekeeping here. For those of you who are in the supporting listeners group and you got locked out of Facebook, we've since moved to MeWe. So if you can't get back into Facebook to see the instructions for how to get over to MeWe, just contact me directly and I'll help you out. For those of you who would like to join the supporting listeners group, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute and you can see the, the relatively paltry amount that you would need to hand me in those dirty fiat dollars in order to get into the fun group at MeWe. And always remember, if you can't make a financial contribution, it still helps a lot. If you share these episodes with people you think might be interested, give them a little taste. Just, hey, hey, what about, this? what about this perspective? That's always a great help as well. Thanks for listening, everybody, and let's get back to the show. So do you want to spend a, a moment on like the, the principle? Because we're arguing empirical stuff and you're sort of conceding for the sake of it. But I mean, you're also for unrestricted immigration you know, from the state. Well, why, yeah, actually, why don't we take a minute and just speak to that a little bit, that it's, it's not that you think people can just walk up into a factory and go in and start making cars and the boss is like, who are you? And he's like, hi, I'm from Mexico. And Ben Powell said I could come in because it's more efficient. Yeah, no, Bob, like, like you, I'm a big fan of private property and boundaries and fences. But I think the mistake some libertarians make on this is equating lines that politicians drew on a map as to being some private property boundary that the voters get to collectively decide who crosses for the rest of us. I think there's a fundamental freedom of association and disassociation that should be respected. And if I would like to interact with an immigrant on my property by renting to him or employing on him. It's no business of any other native-born American, unless there is some sort of externality like this that would infringe upon their property rights, i.e. destroy their economic freedoms. Uh, that's mm -hmm. what I'm not finding evidence for. Okay, so let me make sure. So you're, in your framework, clearly, you know, private property is private property. Nobody can come on my lawn without my permission. And so, you know, if the hordes of of immigrants coming in, they, they can't come in. They can't, ideally, you know, store owners and stuff could have rules about how many people can come in the store. Because I, I think some people, Ben, part of their fear is like they truly picture looking down the street and there's literally 10,000 people coming in. Like, hey, we need, we need jobs. Where, where's, all the, where's all the food? You know, <laughs> and, and so that I think, yeah. so you, you could have people, you know, there could be rules about occupancy and so on. So that would limit that sort of thing. And then your point is just, if, if some employer in the Midwest wants to hire somebody who happens to be in Guatemala, and in a sense, politicians are saying, no, you're not allowed to make that voluntary trade, even though there's a landlord who's willing to rent a room to him. He's going to buy all of his necessities and whatever from voluntary you know, merchants in the US. So there's all these win-win voluntary trades that aren't happening because he can't cross the line to get into the country. And you're saying that's government interference. That's not like the government approximating what, what private landowners would do. Right. I mean, and, that, that, and that also, Bob, that this is the empirically relevant part for almost all existing migration. 
Mm-hmm. They come, they live on private property. They work for people who pay them privately. Mm-hmm. That's the vast, vast majority, not 100%. And mm-hmm. I'm in favor of addressing those that don't fall into that category. But that's how immigration mostly works. And this is also true if you look internal in, in China, where literally hundreds of millions of people have moved from rural interior, less free provinces to more free cities, where the productivity and income gaps are as big as between Latin America and the United States. That's also where what you have there. You have slums and things like that, but they're privately owned. In fact, in China, when they leave and migrate, they lose their right to state assistance often by leaving from one region and going to another. So mm-hmm. this is still respecting private property. The infringers on private property on this are the ones who, who claim to put a filter on who we can associate with on our own private property. Okay, good. So that's, I just want to make you, have you state the framework. And then how do you feel about a useful thought experiment for me when I was trying to think through these issues was a lot of the arguments for the federal government restricting immigration into the country sound okay on the surface of it. But if you switched it to restrictions on U.S. citizens from having kids, you could make a lot of analogous arguments and it would be creepy. Like to say, hey, there's certain groups, come on, we just know statistically if they have kids, they're going to grow up and vote Democrat. And so in the interest of preserving long-run freedom and what this country is all about, that's why certain kids, like this group is only allowed to have a thousand babies next year and the government will allocate permits and you need a, and if you have a baby without the permission, we're going to kick them out. Like that would be horrifying. And people, you know, they, they wouldn't need to run regressions. It would be kind of like, even if that's what you're saying is true, that doesn't matter I don't want the government interfering with it. So it's not the same thing literally, but to me, a lot of the arguments do, you could take the arguments against unrestricted immigration and apply to unrestricted babies from U.S. citizens. Yeah, I, I agree. And you could do the same thing with different fiscal arguments too, of like who's likely to have a kid who's a net tax drag, uh, mm-hmm. things like that. We don't, in this particular book of, of Wretched Refuge, we're looking at a particular question. Mm-hmm. If People are concerned with like the ethical, different ethical systems and how it interacts, including the stuff about private property rights. Brian Kaplan's recent book, Open Borders, The Science and Ethics of Immigration, is excellent. It's a graphic novel, so it's a little bit weird and kind of fun to read like that. Mm-hmm. But it delves into questions about the institutions and, and that, like our book, but you know, not as systematically as, as here. But then it considers different ethical systems and how treating native-born and foreign are different and how they'd all interact with the science of immigration. It's really good to recommend that after they buy this one. Yeah, sure, yeah. That $3 in royalty is going to be huge. Yeah, (laughs) I'll look up. uh, So folks, what what you're listening to right now is bobmurphyshow.com slash 183 with Ben here. I I did interview Brian when he had his graphic novel come out on that. I'll just throw it at at, at you. My biggest concern with what he's doing with his project is the the title, the, the label, Open Borders. To me, because... Brian is an anarcho-capitalist, so in his ideal society, everything would be private property. There, there wouldn't be open borders, and there wouldn't even be a, a right to travel. And so, to me, that seems almost needlessly provocative because there's a bunch of people that just knee-jerk. That sounds scary. Open borders? Are you kidding me? It's kind of like defund the police, right? Like that's an intentionally provocative slogan, and maybe that's good. You know, maybe there's a reason Brian wants to be provocative. But I'm just wondering: is in the same thing with you that it's Strictly speaking, if we had Ancapistan, it would just be a collection of privately held pieces of land, some of which might have fences and armed guards patrolling, and other ones might just say, you know, no no shirt, no shoes, no service, and that would be the only, you know, sort of rule to come onto this piece of property. So I'm just, 
how do you feel? You don't need to. Anyway, yeah. do you have any comments on that on that labeling? Yeah, I, I think you're. I think you're right, Bob. That that you, Brian, and I share sympathies for kind of a radically different order where that mm-hmm. word wouldn't have a particular meaning that it does now. So I avoid it. In this book, I talk about free, mi- free migration or unrestricted mm-hmm. migration. And really what I mean is no blanket quantitative restrictions. Mm-hmm. As long as we're going to have a government, it can have people come through legal checkpoints and be screened to see if they have, if they're a known terrorist or, or violent criminal or something like that. I might have other thoughts about it on the margin, but that's not the point of what the economics is doing here. This is about mass quantities of migrants. Right. There's no problem with them coming through legal checkpoints and still having a border where you only cross at certain places. And in fact, given that you have private property that borders the international crossings, you essentially need that because otherwise you'd be violating the private property rights of people who live on the border. In fact, current illegal immigration does exactly that. If we had more open legal channels, fewer people would have their property rights violated by people crossing borders illegally. Can you say that point again? I, I, I got what you're saying, but I think it's a subtle one. So can you just restate that? Yeah. So when we don't have paths for legal migration, people take matters into their own hands and migrate illegally. But when they do so, they don't come across the bridge in the public checkpoint. They cross the fence or the Rio Grande somewhere else. But then they're going through sometimes public land. But in Texas, there's not a heck of a lot of that. It's violating the private property rights of ranchers and other people who live near the Mexican border as they're cutting through, I think that's a violation of property rights that should be stopped. But the way to better stop it is to open the the legal checkpoints and not put those same quantitative restrictions on them. Okay, so maybe not the best analogy, but kind of like when it comes to drug prohibition, among other problems with it is it leads to more just other types of crime. And so from a public policy perspective, even if you don't think people have the right to take heroin, that's not in your ethical framework. Okay, but keep in mind when you crack down on when you make selling heroin a crime, you're going to let then lead people to go and there's going to be more muggings and people holding up 7-Elevens to get cash. And so likewise here, if your goal is just saying, hey, I just want to defend the sanctity of private property rights and that's why I'm for strict immigration control, your point is that in practice, arguably, at least for some people, there's more people unwanted crossing their land because the government's got this existing regime in place. Yes. Okay. I like it when I can do interview questions that just say. <laughs> okay. Um, is there any anything we've missed? Like any any real juicy things in the book that people in this who talk about this casually, like if they knew this particular fact, would be like, oh wow, I never I didn't realize that. Yeah, but the key is, Bob, I gotta keep that in the book so that way there they have an incentive okay. to buy it. <laughs> yeah, you could have just said yes. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you feel about this in terms of the Again, I just want to push the conceptual issue because I am very concerned when people, in other words, we can all agree on, and when I say we all, I mean like self-described anarcho-capitalists in the Rothbardian tradition. We all agree like what a free society would look like and how things would operate. And then the, the trick is always, okay, given that there's a state, what should it do? And so, for example, even something as silly as, or not silly, but trivial as a public library and what kind of policies should they have about what the patrons can do? And so in one sense, it's like, well, what if a homeless guy goes in there and he's just sleeping, you know, on the floor where people are trying to browse for books? And, you know, some people are saying, well, a private business wouldn't do that. They would kick him out. And so it's fine. It's, you know, even if he's a citizen, it's okay for the public library. But on the other hand, it's, you know, well, gee, but it doesn't, shouldn't the government be more 
restrained in, you know, applying public policy, you know, isn't there a sense in which that's discriminating against that person and the government shouldn't be picking sides as to, you know, who's the right kind of person, that that sort of thing. So I, I guess with, with this, the intuition might be flipped the other way, but with the, with the public library thing, the person who's okay with the library saying, no, only certain types of people are allowed inside the library and to hang out, which I think to a lot of even anarcho-capitalists seems reasonable, wouldn't that extrapolate to, okay, we have to guess and we probably think in a, in a genuine free market, only some types of people would be allowed to, to come in in mass numbers. And so that's the government's trying. Yeah, they don't get it right. And how do we know? But this idea of unrestricted, that's clearly not what would happen. I could see someone making an argument like that. So how do you feel about that? That it's always curious to me when libertarians think that they can centrally plan an international labor market. Uh, however, the analogy breaks down anyway. This would be like anarcho-capitalists who say, well, since we have public libraries, they should decide who can be in them. And also who can be in the hardware store down the street and the butcher shop around the corner and the apartment building next to that. No, their analogy would be more like whatever laws we're going to apply for people who stay in public spaces would need to be applied equally to people who immigrate or who are native born. So things that don't allow you to just lay in the middle of the street or to cause a, a ruckus or nuisance in, in government owned property. But that doesn't translate into we can use restrictions on passage across government land to get to private businesses where someone does want to associate with them. Mm -hmm. This idea that, oh, no, in the free market, there wouldn't be that much of it is obviously bogus. We have employers and rent and landlords in the United States right now who would like to rent to or hire more people from abroad than they're currently allowed. That tells me the equilibrium is not that we need more restrictions. Now, by the way, this market process won't go on forever, Bob, right? Because just getting rid of the restrictions doesn't mean that 100% of people move. As more people move, housing prices go up, job opportunities decline, and you're going to have a natural flow on it. I mean, right now, the United States has completely open immigration with, with Puerto Rico, a U.S. territory. And I think incomes in Puerto Rico are rough, roughly half to two-thirds the level of the United States. Many people moved over the years, but they didn't all move, and they're not massively jumping out right now. Okay, that's that's a really good point to make there. That I, I think you can imagine if there had been very tightly restricted immigration flows historically, and we were debating should we allow unrestricted immigration from Puerto Rico, a lot of people would probably say, oh, "Are you kidding me? Everyone in Puerto Rico would just move to the to the mainland. Why, why would we do that? That'd be crazy, and that would depress wages." So that's a, that's a good illustration to show no that that's not the case. Let me ask you one last one. You just prompted it, and I'm so couldn't someone say, you know, like, yeah, Powell, you're you're a smart guy, and I, but you just said that you know they would start flowing, and then things would change until the point at which they wouldn't want to come in anymore. And so, aren't you admitting, yeah, people from the third world would keep coming to the U.S. until the U.S. was no better than the third world, and then they would stop? And isn't that exactly what our point was? And are you just saying the mechanism that would kick in to make them not want to come, but you're admitting immigration would happen until the point at which the U.S. was no more desirable to live in than the worst country on earth. And are you saying that's because the worst country on earth would then be a Mecca in the new equilibrium or that the U.S. would be brought down? No, that the U.S. wouldn't be brought down, but the cost of living associated with it for someone with lower skill would be going up. So similar to think about... Uh, 
this is going to bundle with it policy changes. So I, I want to be mm-hmm. careful not drawing the analogy too far here. But, you know, booming Silicon Valley, California 20 years ago. And what has happened to the cost of living there? And what has that done to in-migration, uh, particularly of people of modest to lower income means? It's, it didn't destroy the area. The area got richer and, and, and better off. Mm-hmm. But on the margin, the incentive for someone to move in who's going to be at a lower part of that run got harder. So it put a natural break on it without making that area worse. Mm-hmm. If you're one of the ones who would be up on the upper level of the productivity, it's still going to pull it up. And for that matter, saying, oh, well, it's going to crowd out just the native born. Remember, the native born are the ones who own the, own the real estate to start with. Mm-hmm. Okay. So can I ask you one more related sure. follow-up? Yeah. All right. And again, this is mostly devil's advocate, but I, I'm here for the listener who's skeptical. So again, they, they could keep refining in light of your arguments and data, keep perhaps you know, you might say moving the goalpost, they would say, I'm just refining what my problem is. They would say, okay, Powell, it sounds to me like what you're saying is when these waves of immigrants come in from third world countries, rich people in the U.S. who own property are going to be fine, but people who are renting, who don't own any land, and who don't have a college degree, they're going to be the ones that are going to end up being being hurt, just like in some of these areas they call it gentrification. Like, oh yeah, all the yuppies moved in and the people who used to live there now, they can't even afford and they get kicked out. So is like the whole U.S. going to become gentrified? And I know that's weird saying because third world immigrants are moving in, but something like that. So I have to be a little bit careful here. So it's an overall gain to the native-born population and it's going to be disproportionately allocated to those whose skills are different than the Im- immigrants and to those who own capital or real estate. So to the extent American workers have IRAs or 403, 403Bs, 401Ks, they're all stock owners. That is a capital owner gain. Mm-hmm. Ownership of real estate, also gain. Where do immigrants directly compete? If they directly compete in your occupation, then in the short run, you might have a negative wage impact. And if they directly compete for the housing stock that you'd like that you do not own, then they're going to push up the price of that. Okay. Fair enough. Well, thanks, Ben, for your time. The book is Wretched Refuse. And my guest has been Ben Powell. Folks, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 183 for the links associated with this conversation. Ben, thanks for your time. Thank you, Bob. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.